Hi, this is Roberta Fallon, and you're listening to Art Blog Radio. Today, I'm at Arcadia University's Art Gallery with Richard Torchia. Hi, Richard. Hi. And Zach C. Hi, Zach. Hi. How are you doing today? Thanks Great. for having us in and talking with us. Um, we're in the gallery, as I said, and we're surrounded by a bunch of books. Each book is placed on its own beautiful little shelf plywood shelf that was made probably by students, if I had to guess. Yes, by students. They're nodding their heads. Mm -hmm. um, some of the books, there's a lot of books in the room, and some of them are by art artists that you might recall, Sophie Call, Paul Chan, you know, big name artists. And then there's something that I consider the zinger, maybe it isn't, J.J. Abrams, the film director, who has this quirky book with all kinds of inserts into it. And there's Philadelphia book writers in here and books. Um, there's the legacy writers, including Walt Whitman, and then another singer to me, William Faulkner and Gertrude Stein. So it's like a mini book fair, but the books are not for sale. Yes, they're nodding their heads, they're not for sale. So this exhibit is called Writers Making Books, and it's in conjunction with Whitman at 200, Art and Democracy. So can you tell me, Richard, let's start with you, how this show came about? Sure. Um, it's interesting because Judith Tannenbaum, who is back in Philadelphia after uh, working at um, Brown as the, no, Risty as the uh, curator of contemporary art, um, after a 10-year uh, position there, she's re she returned to Philadelphia a few years ago. and. We were just talking casually, I think, at an opening or some event, and I was asking her what she was interested in doing now that she was coming back, having been at the ICA for many, many years, and um, knowing that she's somebody who's not going to sit at home and um, you know watch reruns. So she she had a, a, a she mentioned an interest in Camden and um, wanting to be interested in Camden as a subject and. Naturally, Whitman came up, and I think between the two of us, we were thinking, well, well, well when was Whitman born? Are there any anniversaries coming up? And I, if somehow between us, uh, this was 2016 or, or earlier, maybe. Yeah, maybe, I can't remember exactly, but the 1819 was the May 31st, 1819 is Whitman's uh, bicentennial. He was born on. Yeah. that day, and suddenly a light bulb went off, and it, the, the amount of time between our conversation and and that got something started, I think, for, for Judith that she ran with and eventually developed with Lynn Farrington uh, at the Kislak Center at um, Penn. I did not realize that she was one of the founders oh, of yeah. the celebration. Oh, yeah. She had, she's an instrumental figure in, in the, getting this off the ground. Very cool. And there were field trips to Camden and... Um, so I, I sort of lost track of that a little bit, but when I saw that it was actually in the works and they were actually applying to uh, the Pew Center for funding, um, and we got into a conversation again, and I came across this uh, text by a, a scholar named Ed Folsom, uh, who's a professor at Iowa University, University of Iowa, um, who's actually very much involved in um, the, there are several Whitman archives, right? But, 
so I, I read this essay, um, and the opening paragraph was really uh, game-changing in, in the sense that it basically uh, introduces Whitman not as somebody who we, we know that he is a writer of Leaves of Grass, but it sort of celebrates um, Whitman as a bookmaker and as somebody who grew up as a, a typesetting and actually couldn't recognize his own poetry unless it had been uh, you know, printed on paper, you know, at a press initially, handset. So, um, and this this book, this exhibition was developed in 25 for the uh, sesquicentennial of Leaves of Grass, which was published in 1855. But the opening paragraph became a kind of, um, almost like a, a call to think about a contemporary reflection on uh, the idea of, of a writer's book, as it were, somebody, a, a book that basically took charge of, of the production, the material, you know, objecthood of Leaves of Grass. And that story was something I didn't know, that we think that, we, you know, assume that a lot of people would be interested in, in that angle on a show. And, I mean, just to go forward, uh, I mean, I, I spoke to Lynn last summer, and she sort of helped with a short list of people that we could talk to. But the catalyzing moment, there were several, but one of them was talking with Zach, because um, I was sort of struggling with actually getting um, things off the ground in terms of, you know, the idea was great, but who were these people that were making their own, who were the writers that were making their own books? And uh, we had, I thought about going to Printed Matter uh, as a resource and some other places, you know, that, and there were sort of a long list of people that I could talk to, but it wasn't until I, I talked to Zach on the phone. Um, and was that December? Right after Christmas. Yeah. And he mentioned House of Leaves, which was the perfect sort of contemporary counterpart to Leaves of Grass in terms of a writer taking control, and maybe this is where I had the, the, the baton of you. Um, yeah, so we just started having conversations. Dick had mentioned the kind of the story he just narrated and um, where he was coming at this question from Whitman's perspective and wanting to apply it to a contemporary audience. And he, he basically was like, do you have any ideas? Do you have any names pop, to my, pop into mind? And, and House of Leaves was the first thing, because um, it kind of perfectly encapsulates a lot of those concepts that we were talking about, just in terms of and a, a visible authorial intent in the bookmaking itself, in the formatting and the typography. Um, so Mark Z, Daniel Lewski's book, House of Leaves, was a huge sort of piece in opening up this conversation for me and Dick about what does this sort of conversation look like in a contemporary context? Um, and what does it look like? What does it look like? Well, so... <laughs> I can't imagine. Daniel Lewski's book, House of Leaves, is this kind of fascinating, pseudo-intellectual narrative, um, frame narrative, within frame narrative, within frame narrative, story of um, this sort of impossible labyrinthine house and all of the different people who interact with it from a personal level, architecturally, intellectually, academically. Um, but what's fascinating about it is that it is it features all of these very innovative formatting um, sort of techniques that you don't see oftentimes in books. So there's um, many different font types. There's typographical choices. There's odd spacing, there's pages that are in different colors, there's crossed out lines, there's windows that go from the 
front of one page to the back of another, and the text is mirrored. Um, so it's all text. We're looking at a book now, and it's a very thick book. There must be 600 pages in it or more. And I don't see any pictures. Nope. It's all, you talk about windows. There are windows, but they either are black boxes or they have text in them. Right, or they're created in an, through text themselves in the way that the text is arranged in different directions um, or layered on top of each other. And so it's just kind of this fascinating conversation between physical book space and textual figurative space. And so there's this <clears throat> conversation going on that the author consciously decided to have included in the book. And so that sort of launched this conversation about, like, well, not necessarily what are the exact same things that Whitman did in his book that are happening in a contemporary context, but contextually itself, what motivations as a writer, printer, bookmaker, what, what are those urges, and how are they manifesting themselves today? So let's talk about artists' books, because I noticed that you have some artists in the show who make books as well as make art. And the Daniel... Danieluski. Dan, Danieluski book, I would assume he's not an artist, but I don't know that. You're shaking your heads no. So he's not an artist, but his book is very artistic, but there are no pictures in it. Right. So I would think, uh, you know, there is a difference in the type of book that you're trying to focus on primarily in this show. So not things that you might see at the Philadelphia Art Book Fair, which is a wonderful fair that happens in Philadelphia, has happened every year for the last, I don't know, five years maybe, and has a lot of very colorful, very picture-filled, picture-rich books made by artists. Also with the handmade kind of probably typeset, some of them, but different because of the, the balance between the pictures in those art books, artist-made books, and this, which is a writer-made book. Mm -hmm. So is that right? And that, that's a conversation that Richard and I had a lot throughout the kind of curatorial process to begin with, which was, what exactly are we highlighting? What are we focusing on? And what, what specific elements of these books differentiates them maybe from those things that you just listed? And I think for me, and you can jump in and add your, your two cents, but or more than that. Um, but I think it's this, going back to Whitman as the sort of impetus behind the show, it was, he was a writer who was deeply invested in the physical materiality of his work. And so we really wanted to keep that dual focus on like book as object, but still book as text, book as symbolic representational text. And so the works that we, we wound up choosing to include in the show really do have that sort of groundedness in written text. And sometimes there are images and there's a conversation between image and text, but I think for the most part, and Richard, you can talk more about this, but artists' books are those that maybe have similar um, criteria for the way that they're made or the way that they're printed or disseminated, um, but more often than not, the text is in service of the image, if there is text, whereas this is kind of a refocusing on, on the text in a different context. So let, let's talk back to you, Richard, about the actual selections of books here. So do you want to talk about books that are made in the Whitman-esque fashion, apart from the leaves of, House, House of Leaves, leaves sorry. And, and I should say something about that title mm. was so beautiful, like the fact that suddenly Zach is mentioning this book called House of Leaves, which has the same word. And just to go back to Whitman, Whitman's title for his own book is a very considered uh, play on words. So we have um, 
the word leaf, which we understand as a, a reference to page, but the word grass has a kind of very specific reference to a kind of uh, a printing of no importance in, in a way. And we think of, I mean, there's a lot of discussion in this book, the Fulsom book, about um, practical printing, job printing. In fact, the first edition of Leaves of Grass on that big, um, those big pages, a lot of people assume that when Whitman's long lines, those, those sentences that go on and on and on, um, are printed, that he actually chose that page size to accommodate the line of his writing, of, the, of his verse, but it just happened to be the paper that was in the press at the time because the two brothers that ran the press, their, their job, their, their primary uh, role was to print on ledger sheets for, for businesses and those books that, so, which is a, in a funny way a kind of total reversal of what we're talking about. Because right, he lost control. He lost control, but he accepted what was, because he wanted, it was the paper that was there, and he didn't, he was funding this himself. This was a, a very explicit act of self-publishing. He knew that the, he couldn't maybe get the book published if he brought it around to other, um, you know, uh, professional printers within that field. Uh, so, it's an example of self-publishing, but also he bound the copies. He had a hand in the design of the cover and the, uh, the blind stamping, and, and so. And this was just natural for him because he'd grown up in, in this world. He'd learned how to typeset when he was twelve, and um, as I mentioned before, he was very comfortable proofing his poems not by hand, but after they'd been set. So. To some extent, the fun of this is, was trying to figure out that category of what, what kind of through line, what, why weren't we going to be making this sh a show of artist books? And the, to go back to the Daniel Lewski, um, so one thing that was shocking for me was to discover that there was an off-the-shelf, mainstream uh, book that was so innovative. It wasn't an artist book, it was a book you know, written by a writer, who had total control. In fact, um, he was actually given access to a special um, software that, uh, it was a Pantheon? Pantheon books. So a, a very interesting case where the writer's sort of given a tool that he wouldn't have at home to create the, the layout, which is actually very visual and very physical, but not about pictures, not about illustrations, not about drawing. It's about text as a kind of, almost a sculptural plastic thing and the book, likewise, as a sort of place, a space that this writer was opening up in a way that um, is innovative and influential. There, there is a, you can Google the, all of the art, the writers who were um, sort of liberated or given license by this book. So that's what, so the fact that these were off the shelf stuff that you could get from Amazon. And then another moment happens when, like, I visit. Dita, who, who you know, yes. and have you visited her studio. And I know of Dita's work as an artist. We're talking about Dita Baron-Hofer. Right. And, uh, and I know of her as a writer who's published her uh, poems in, in like American poetry, or, but um, she has not had her own, you know, she's not had, like a, like a lot of poets would prefer, to, to have a, a, a publisher you know, give her a, a chance to publish her poems in a book. And so she 
I asked specifically about these, her writing, you know, and she, she showed me these beautiful editions that she'd made herself. And it was very moving for me because she, though she's had them published online or in other like, uh, anthologies, whatever, or these magazines, to see these poems brought together in the way that she wanted them to be presented with all the space around them, all the, the breathing room, the sort of, um, was very inspiring because she ultimately she wanted them to exist in, physically in the world, and so she produced, she had to take that on herself, which reminded me exactly of what Whitman was doing—the need to just see the the type on a page, you know. And she sets them very beautifully. She uses an inkjet printer, but they look like letterpress. So the physicality of the of the book is very important, and so. And, and she does everything. She prints it, she, she, she doesn't make the paper, but everything about the book comes from, from Dita. And that, so that, in a way, that, those books over there, along with the other examples from uh, Marianne Dages, for example, or, or Liam Pym, represent the writer taking total control of every aspect of the production, uh, of the physical nature of the book. And then there's a kind of, you know, uh, you have various books are very collaborative. You have to, I mean, the whole, let's take the film, filmmaking, if you can't, it's, but, so we have this, uh, you know, we could, I don't know where the, where we end up on the other side of the, of the book that's, I mean, Randall Peel might, I mean, sorry, Randall Couch um, might be an example of, of a writer who's working very carefully with uh, uh, Simon, Cuts, is that his name? Um, we have several books from Coracle here, and this is a, a, an imprint in, I think, based in, in yeah, Ireland, Ireland yeah. who give the writers a lot of latitude. And basically, though Randall isn't someone like Dita or Marianne Dages, who would actually bind and print everything, he was very much uh, involved in the physical and the visual production of the, of the book. Um, and in terms of your question just about like the, the selection process, I think Richard just narrated beautifully like the, the, on the continuum of like what books we selected with relation to Whitman and the artist, the writer having full control. One of the other sides of that would be, for example, the, um, the Faulkner book that we have, which is, I think, a really, a really interesting example of someone who, you know, he'd written in his notes when The Sound and the Fury was published. Ideally, if printing tech—I'm I'm, paraphrasing—ideally, if, if printing techniques could afford this, I would love the opportunity to have um, this certain section of the book, that one of the first sections, Benji's section, written in different font and different color. But basically, it's not possible right now. So, in 2012, these um, academics kind of found that, and it resurfaced, and they wound up making um, a, a limited selection of these books, kind of to the specifications that Faulkner had wanted. So, that's an extremely collaborative time-bound, you know, temporally spaced process um, that I think balances well with some of the more bespoke um, authorial intent styled books that we included. Fascinating. Um, you've talked a little bit about the digital realm, people designing things uh, for books, uh, software, etc. We're all reading on our tablets and phones and computers like all day long, and it is a very powerful interface. And it's really good to read, possibly. There are differing opinions mm -hmm. online. Um, so there's not a Kindle in this show. 
There's no electronic tablet or anything like that. So you're really, let's talk about that a little bit. How would, uh, you know, someone put one of these beautiful books online and make it equally a good experience, or is that impossible? In other words, books in the real world like these need to be in the real world. I can take a stab. I think I, think yeah. I definitely want to say something about Whitman, but yeah. go ahead. I mean, the form of material expression changes things so much, obviously. Um, we were talking about, we talked about that a lot with the, um, the 26 sort of individual books by Athena Taka that we have in here. They would be a completely different thing, even materially, if they were included in like one omnibus or one collection, an anthology of her work. So there's something about the specific physical materiality of these individual kind of small little pamphlets that matters. And I think that is a similar part of the conversation with the difference between the in-print books that we have in the show versus digital, um, digital representations, which we've talked about. And kind of, you'll probably talk about this with Whitman, but there was, a, there was this sort of focus for him on people engaging physically with his books and being able to carry them. There was transportability that was really important to him, and he wanted his books read outdoors, and there's all sorts of quotes about how he envisioned people enjoying his work. Um, for the everyman. And so I think for us, it was, we really wanted to continue to capture that feeling of, of the physical interaction with these, with these texts. And I think digital humanities is a big thing right now and it changes, it's a, it's a quite different conversation of how we read and what parts of our brain we're, we're, we're um, using when we read from a screen versus a paper um, or a bound text. And I think that's all, those are all conversations that we had when we were kind of coming up with this show. Yeah, and we did think at one point about having a screen somewhere to access, for example, facsimiles of, of the six different editions of Leaves of Grass, which um, are out there. You can find them online. And, um, and that Zach mentioned a specific uh, quote where Whitman, it's funny because that first edition of Leaves of Grass is not portable in, in the sort of conventional sense. But the second edition, and, the, and the, all those subsequent ones actually shrink down, and, you know, and they become what he, he, he talked about, being able to put it in your pocket, read it in, in, a, in a forest or at the beach. And so thinking, too, about the, uh, even the name, the name of this bicentennial celebration, the democratic spirit of, of, of the book, there's also this other through line which has to do with the physical. I mean, Whitman's a very corporeal, uh, the, the, the writing is very much about the sensual, um, physical nature of, of being a human being. And um, so everything about the show is sort of coming from that idea of the tactile contact with, a, with paper. Uh, there's a section here devoted to um, actually the quality of, of, of paper and what happens with, with paper itself. And then there's, um, just to say it, the, the, you mentioned earlier the fact that each book is on its, sh its own shelf. We just did some tests, and we know that that effect of having a book sort of float on the wall like that, it sort of encourages a kind of uh, tantalizing, almost uh, flirtation that um, then gets sort of uh, developed by the invitation that comes from this book table itself. With its, so the, the idea is to sort of indulge in the, the physical relationship that a, that a book can offer. And one thing we talked about a lot is the fact that, you know, we, this is a very unusual situation. Books are meant to be read. They're not necessarily meant to be 
seen and I mean one of the things I would have said about artist books and Ed Boucher comes up as a sort of really good example in terms of the fact that the book, his, he made it possible for an artist to make a book without any text. Basically the book is a vehicle for looking and you can experience 49 parking lots or 20 whatever, or whatever, the, all those books can be browsed and experienced very quickly. I think that there's a way for these books to be enjoyed um, in that flirtation period. It, they can be uh, uh, appreciated physically and visually without having to sort of sit down and read them. And yet we've set up the situation here so that if you want to come back and indulge in Leaves of House of Leaves or any of these other books, um, that you can get comfortable doing that too. So we're just trying to create another way to appreciate the, the book as a thing that's not just a text because, and I think this is an important thing um, to say that I, when a text is divorced from the physical uh, uh, support or infrastructure, this show, if anything, is a demonstration of what is lost or, or what can be gained by the architecture of, of paper and binding and the codex itself as a form for, or a vehicle for a text. Yeah, I, I want to say that you've created a very beautiful little reading room within the gallery um, with a lovely green wall queuing off leaves of grass green and some easy chairs, armchairs to sit in and this gorgeous table that has two book cradles. Can you explain what a book cradle is for people who don't know what it is? I had never heard the term before. Sure. It's in a way it comes from uh, museum furniture vocabularies, but it's a it's a safe way to present a book without um, compromising or jeopardizing uh, its spine, especially in the case of historic books that um, have to be very carefully handled and can be destroyed if they're if they're open too far. So it's it's a display situation, not so much a reading situation, I think, but. Um, but the, the idea was to, again, that, that, that impulse came from, from Dita Berenkova, whose books are often made using accordion fold instead of being bound, and they, they are much happier when they're, they're held in this sort of supportive armature, which we Which is like arms, exactly. so it, it does mimic yeah. sort of a cradling. Yeah. Um, I wonder if either of you have ever met a bookmaker that you wanted to make a book with. Have you made a book? Um, do you want to talk about that? I have, in a, in a very simplistic context. Um, I wrote a novel last year, um, and I was kind of partially informed, I think this experience partially informed our conversations in this show, in that I was finding myself only able to edit it so far digitally. And I wanted, I wanted to see it in a different light, and I was trying to get out of my own headspace. And so I realized that I really needed to have a printed copy before I could make those kind of final changes. Um, and so I took it to, a, I live in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and I took it to a local print shop. And it was really just a fascinating experience talking with the, the two or three workers who were there that day about what I was imagining, what kind of letting and spacing I wanted for the book, um, how long I wanted it to be, did I want it to be double-sided, did I want colored binding, all these things that I knew, you know, I'm not mass distributing this, it was really just for me and my close family and friends, um, but just as a way for me to sort of see it in a different light, back to that conversation, the digital versus the physical, it was, it was necessary for me to see it, um, and it was 
really fun to make all these decisions about like what weighted paper do I want and do I want it to be double-sided and how does that change and can it, is it see-through and does that change the reading experience of each page and uh, so I, I would I've worked with them subsequently the same print shop and um, like I said very kind of simplistic when you compare it to some of these these works in here but I totally understand the urge behind wanting or needing to see your work printed physically bound materially available and also just the excitement that is generated from having that sort of say or that control um, behind how something is physically and visually expressed. Very cool. Well, I think our time is almost up, so I'm going to say thank you very much for speaking with me. I'm talking with Richard Tortilla and Zach C. at Arcadia University Art Gallery, and the show that we're talking about is Writers Making Books in conjunction with Whitman at 200 Art and Democracy. So come see the show. It's up till April 21st. April 21st. And listen to this podcast, which is now available on Artblog and on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Thank, Thank you so much. So much.